0: Hello, Happy New Year to you. I hope you've survived the festive period in one piece and I really hope you managed to get some rest, and recuperation and reflection time in amidst all the chaos. I know it's kind of a funny time of year for many of us, especially if there's loss or family dynamics or you're not where you want to be in life. I've definitely had my fair share of pretty miserable Christmases. But this year was pretty chilled and happy, I have to say. I hope that you're looking forward to what 2023 brings and taking those lessons from 2022. So welcome to the first podcast of 2023. This is Back to Life. If you've listened before, you know that this is a podcast all about healing and recovery, creativity and electronic music. So basically... I speak to people from the world of electronic music, all about mental health, addiction, recovery, healing and their creative process and how those things intersect. Uh, I'm really excited actually about 2023 in terms of back to life. I've confirmed a few more names over the Christmas period and yeah, got some really exceptional guests lined up and lots of other plans and ideas for Back to Life 2 that I'm hoping to bring to life over the next few weeks and months. So if you're not already, please do follow the podcast on Instagram as that's where all the news gets posted first. And there's also a link to our coffee account where you can chuck us a couple of quid if you'd like to support the work that we're doing. And there's also links to all the latest episodes and clips um, of our incredible guests. On the topic of that, I'm going to be hosting the very first Back to Life party on the 28th of January. It's going to be in Bristol at the Love Inn. I've got an absolutely stellar lineup. Some of my favorite DJs and people, Tashiki Ota, Galagus or Galagus, whatever you prefer, uh, Bex and myself. And yeah, it's not a sober event, uh, but sober people are going to be very welcome and I'm sober and I'll be there. So if you're feeling like uh, you want to do dry January uh, or if you're in recovery, hopefully you'll feel that it's a welcoming space, going to be lots of amazing music and good times. So I hope that some of you who are listening today can join us there and shake off those January blues. Uh, Yeah, something to look forward to and hope to meet some of you in real life. So today, my fourth guest of the season, and the very first one of 2023, is DJ Wingold, who is the creator of Unbound Events. He's a DJ, promoter, activist, advocate, and by day, a lawyer. So he's got a shitload of stuff going on. I first started following Charles, that's his real name, over the pandemic. And yeah, someone who I feel is very much, you know, on a similar path has similar values he is someone who is just fearlessly unapologetically and unfilteredly himself you know he talks from the heart he's very vulnerable just someone I really really admire um, both creatively and personally so of course I was absolutely thrilled to have him join me on the podcast I started off by asking him about his musical roots and what his earliest memories of music were
1: I've always been into music for like a long time. I think it's quite funny, a lot of DJ or artist bios always say, with a very musical family who passed down like vinyl, etc. Um, I did not have a family like that. My parents, and I can come into this later, but they were not into uh, secular music. They're both Christian pastors. So um, I kind of got into this and music like as a teenager. Um, but even when I was a young kid, would always be dancing, always like listening to stuff. Uh, and then around the age of 15 or between 14 and 16, I would say my first one true love uh, was pop punk, funnily enough. So I got heavily into all the bands like Paramore, still a massive Paramore fan. Shout out Haley Williams. Um, and then started going to gigs through that. Um, and like indie folk and like singer songwriter stuff. And then around the age of 16, um, discovered dubstep. Uh, but that was, like, the really bad, trashy dubstep. And all this, by the way, was through the internet, so I think that's kind of informed, like, how I go about curating stuff and discovering stuff. So, yeah, started going to <laughs> under-18 dubstep raves, uh, which was basically bro-step, and then just before uni discovered, like, burial and post-dubstep, and then got into electronic music, and here we
0: are. I don't feel like I came from a, a particularly musical family either I mean my parents were into music but mm. probably not stuff that necessarily has influenced me if you know what I mean I always feel a little bit jealous of people who are like yeah I inherited my dad's like incredible record collection it's yeah. like soul disco and reg groove classics and I'm like Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if only. Yeah.
0: So when do you start getting into DJing and start thoughts of like putting on your own events and stuff come in?
1: This is like inextricably tied to like my healing journey, as I say, still ongoing. So I was six months into my first job, which I'll actually, I'll say on record because like I'm always quite vague about it, but I actually like want to say. So I was a corporate lawyer at what was at the time the world's largest law firm, I think I've always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about that, because I think it kind of, at least for me, makes you feel like less authentic. Six months into that, I was like, I absolutely hate this. (laughs) Like, this is the worst thing ever. Um, So I was like, oh, well, I like music. Um, I'm really depressed, uh, but I'm being paid a lot. Let me start putting on notes. Um, And then the idea to DJ, again, wasn't even there, because I was just like, this is not something that's in my life And then I think like a few months before the first one, I was like, oh, well, I've got like an idea of like a sound that I think is there to be explored. What's the best way of doing that? Oh, DJing. Um, And then I just kind of like fell down the wormhole and then like really went in deep on it.
0: Why did you feel like having that, that job made you less authentic?
1: I think like... One of the things that drives me is a search for authenticity and like being like your true self. And I don't know, I just felt like it was very at odds with like the underground values of the scene. And even though like my intentions have only ever been pure and like very much focused on like pure creativity, I kind of felt that a lot of it is you kind of like you're scrabbling around to make things work. And I had like, excess funds, basically, to pour into my creative endeavours. So, like, Unbound, over the first few years, like, lost so much money. And it's not that I could, like, afford to, like, it has impacted me, but to a lesser degree, I was like, oh, well, this is money I would have spent on, like, something else. So, yeah, I always felt like I had an advantage in that sense.
0: It's kind of a a lose-lose situation, isn't it? Because you sort of feel, if you're doing okay financially, like, you're kind of almost guilty about that and... You know, if you're not, then you're aiming to do better. There's a sort of glorification of the sort of struggling artist.
1: And I think that that's a really good, yeah, I think I like romanticised the idea in my head. It was like, if you want to do this properly, you have to be a struggling artist. And so I felt like a bit like a fraud for a while. But then it's only ever been just like, again, for creative expression.
0: Tell me more about like the gestation of... I'm bound. I to think be. it's
1: gonna make me sound like a crazy person. <laughs> I'm
0: <laughs> like, here for it. You're on the right
1: podcast. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Okay, good. It basically feels like an idea that's been like in the back of my mind for most of my life, but without me even realising because again, this was never a path I thought was possible or that I would even walk down. But then musically, aesthetically, in terms of pushing the social justice, I think I had subconsciously always been looking for a vehicle to do these things but then there's so many different facets to it. Um, I guess I'll start with the aesthetic which is like kind of space um, themed but also like heavily influenced by nature. I've always been fascinated by space and I think when I was like at essentially rock bottom one of the things that really inspired me was it sounds kind of ridiculous but it's like looking to the night sky and then kind of realizing like not how insignificant we are but also like how we are and how we have all these problems all these issues but in the grand scheme of the universe like it's kind of nothing so then looking on the flip side of that and gaining a lot of inspiration from that and being like there are actually limitless possibilities out there because we have a short amount of time so yeah so that's kind of where the spaces that it came from and then there was a exhibition i went to at the tate which was absolutely formative for me Um, and it was called Sullivanation and that was essentially art linked to the civil rights movement in the US and it's where my artist name DJ Wingold comes from Um, there's an African-American artist called Faith Wingold she um, used art as a means to comment on social justice and to effectively like, like amplify black people um, and in that exhibition, there were like so many inspiring pieces. So I kind of walked away from that. And again, I had an idea in the back of my mind, being like, art can be used to like actually create some change. Um, at least I think so. Um, and then I went to that, and I was like, okay, wow, like this is a thing. Um, so then I basically wasn't like a heavy like black empowerment vibe um, after that. and It was also a way to kind of dig into my identity and find out more about myself as a black person. So then naturally that led me to Underground Resistance uh, and DJ Stingray um, and all the Detroit guys. Um, And just seeing what they did and kind of like how they used music as a form of self-actualization and also a political counterpoint as well. um, That just blew my mind. (laughs) And like to this day still is so inspiring because just seeing how they, yeah, genuinely use it as a vehicle to actually try and create some change. And then being born and bred in London, I just knew I wanted to really, like, rep for the UK and all the kind of foundational genres for me, which are, like, dubstep, grime. Um, and then, like, getting further afield, like, drill and all the kind of, like, rough and ready UK styles and jungle as well. Kind of fusing that with the energy of, like, early Detroit to create this mad social justice, musical, quite uncompromising um, weirdo sound that, like isn't necessarily like easily digestible, but I think it's sick and yeah. <laughs> so that's like, yes. Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> I think it's interesting that the idea that art can be used to create change and is something more than uh, a kind of frivolous add-on mm. or uh, like, or a nice decorative extra, the idea that that's been kind of that that's not mainstream is kind of wild isn't it?
1: Obviously (laughs) like capitalism kind of gets its grubby hands on stuff and then that kind of washes away all this stuff so there's a lot of talk about like plur and like looking after each other and like showing respect but um, at its core I think that's kind of been like overlooked now and like a lot of it is money focused which is fine but it kind of does remove from, like, the very, like, legitimate, politically engaged roots. And so it's, like, when I said it's tied up in my healing journey, like, this has been a way for me to, like, get back to myself. So then a big part of that, and this is why I'll sound ridiculously like a crazy person, um, is the Afrofuturist aspect, which um, ties in to the whole underground resistance stuff. Um, but the way it came to me, oh, my God. So, like... Maybe it was like being sleep deprived, maybe it was like because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. But I remember one night I was um, practicing my CDJs like after work, um, kind of like hit upon a specific blend, which was like an early Batu track with like an Afrobeats track. And I remember being like, whoa, this is insane. Went to bed and then basically it felt like I had a vision and like I rarely dream Um, or rarely remember my dreams but then even now I can still very vividly remember this dream and it was just like a whole load of different concepts like hurtling through light speed in my brain there was like a song I'd been listening to like six months ago where like the lyrics suddenly like made sense and it was tied into like the idea of being visited like by some muse so then I woke up and I was like that was weird but like I know what I need to do now, like, Afrofuturism. And then that's kind of how, like, this whole Afrofuturist journey's, like, kind of progressed.
0: That sounds incredible. I love that. That sort of reminds me a bit of Eris Drew's Mother Beat uh, Ooh, story, you yeah. know, her Mother Beat experience. And I think... Like, these moments that we have, you know, like you say, like we kind of label them as crazy, but why? Why Why is that crazy? You know, that actually sounds like a real, like, moment of, like, connection and inspiration.
1: It was, it was yeah, it was a real breakthrough. Yeah.
0: yeah. So for, like, anyone who's not familiar with uh, the concept of ap- Afrofuturism, could you give a little overview of what it is? Because it's such an interesting movement.
1: It's basically a um, general, like, aesthetic. Creative aesthetic is the best way to... Um, describe it. Um, it was first kind of coined by um, a director called John Acomfra. Um He directed a documentary called The Last Angel of History. And before that, it had been, like, loosely practiced. I mean, it, it had been practiced. Like, Sun Ra was, like, an early proponent. So it can be used in art, film, visual media, um, writing. They're, like, a whole load of, like, black practitioners. Uh, and it is essentially using science fiction or futuristic concepts to represent a new horizon or a new way of being for black people. Obviously there have been centuries of hardship uh, for all minorities, um, but obviously going back to like the slavery movement um, and then fighting against like the civil rights movement. So like poets, artists, singers, filmmakers kind of tapping in. Uh, to think of a new future and represent that creatively, and in doing so creatively, self-actualizing and making a new future for themselves. So yeah, that that's a like short version.
0: You've mentioned a few times that you were depressed, and it sounds like you were like actually incredibly successful externally. You went to uni, you got a job in this leading law firm, so. It sounds like you were ticking a lot of boxes of what, you know, we're told brings us happiness and contentment and satisfaction, and yet you were depressed. I'm really interested to hear about that. What kind of prompted you to embark on a healing journey?
1: Well, oh, wow. So I think, okay, because this is deep. Um, Basically, like, being a chronic people pleaser, when I got this job... I, in my heart of hearts, knew that, like, it would not be for me. But it had a really good starting salary. And my parents were like, you study law at uni if you don't become a lawyer. So when I got this offer, um, I instinctively knew it wouldn't work out. And if I had gone with my gut, I would have probably turned it down. But then also leaving uni and then, like, having a very lucrative job offer would have been kind of crazy to do that. Um... And I think I knew that the people were all very different. It was an environment that I just didn't fit in at all, and I felt like very out of place um on the surface, I seemed fine, um, but deep inside, I was just losing my mind. Um, so the way I dealt with that is I just disassociated um, and then, yeah, basically from the first six months, like kind of shut down and became a very inward looking person before that job and how I am now, there's like a clear difference um, that like changed me. I used to think for the worst, I guess it's just like different now. Whereas before I would have been or was like constantly like always happy, um, maybe like even like naively um, idealistic about the world. After that, I was just like very sad a lot of the time um, because I was kind of like not being true to myself. So then to get through that was when I then stumbled on mindfulness and all these concepts of self-care. So then really went down like a wormhole learning about that stuff and then decided to imbue, unbound with those kind of ideals whilst trying to like reconnect with myself at the same time. (sighs) Trauma. (laughs) Lots of fun, yeah.
0: In terms of like disassociating from yourself, can you kind of tell me more about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so like the way that manifested was I would say um, basically like my mind and body shut down and were like completely disconnected. Um, And it was kind of crazy because I'd been used to being like a very outward facing, extroverted, kind of like happy go lucky, no worries kind of person, like positive thinking solves everything. Um, And I did very much approach my depression with that mindset until you realize there's a point where like willpower can only do so much. I felt as if I was like fully just trapped in my own body. Um, So it would be like very pleasant on the surface, but then deep inside I would just feel like trapped and as if there was no way out. So when I said disassociated, it was like life was happening around me. I was moving through life, but it's like I was sleepwalking through life for like two and a bit years. Um, but then amidst all this, I also took on the pressure of starting <laughs> Unbound. And I have no idea how I got through that because um, it was just like more pressure than anyone should be under.
0: You said that you um, started Unbound around this time and also that you started getting into mindfulness and meditation. And I'd love to hear sort of how how the mindfulness and meditation helped you. Because I'm also someone who have found, you know, meditation a huge, huge part of my healing Practice.
1: I mentioned my parents are pastors, so I was brought up Christian and I still practice the faith noun, but I, I guess like not to, as stringently as my parents do. But around that time, kind of felt as if everything was completely hopeless. And then I remember I read a book by the Dalai Lama called The Art of Happiness, which the underlying message is you have the power to happiness within yourself. So then from that, I then just went down like a, yeah, like a massive rabbit hole of like reading all about like mindfulness. Um, Sounds cheesy as hell, but like listening to like self-improvement podcasts, kind of like, because I mentioned like that experience at the law firm, just those two years, going through all that, I basically felt I had to rebuild myself up from ground zero and kind of learn how to be a human again. So then I just like went into the world of like, self-improvement because I'm very goal-oriented so I was like if I can read so-and-so listen to so-and-so maybe that'll like help me change the way I approach things and then yeah meditation was probably like the biggest changer Um, I think it was through listening to Tim Ferriss his podcast I think I just kept on hearing oh yeah meditation like a lot of people on that were like it's worth trying out so I just like downloaded Headspace um, and then I felt the difference it made and kind of in helping shut off an overactive brain and kind of just like really put away all the noise and all the sadness and everything and kind of just be like just be i found that really powerful um and then kind of just continued from there so yeah i've been meditating for like five years now how about you i want to hear about like how you got into this stuff
0: so i went through the 12-step program which is a spiritual program And uh, part of it is prayer and meditation. And I think the aspect for me that was the most profound really was that idea of being able to kind of notice my thoughts rather than being completely convinced by them. So thoughts would come... And in the past, I'd just be completely convinced that this was the truth and I must believe this and I must act on yeah, this. Yeah. And then when I started to meditate, I had a bit of space between me and those thoughts.
1: Yeah. And it is exactly, it's that like, um, realizing that we are not our thoughts. Um, and I think for me, that was like a game changer because I've been used to, and I've vaguely mentioned, like, ADHD brain, but, like, just having scattered thoughts and being, like, at the mercy of just, like, random stuff going around up there.
0: Yeah, and that statement, I am not my thoughts, I remember kind of my first sponsor who's like a mentor who I worked with in recovery and I remember her saying that to me and that just kind of blowing me away and like why did no one tell me
1: literally and it takes a while to get your head around it because it's like thoughts can be there but they won't dictate who you are right
0: absolutely and I think also like the concept of like noticing thoughts just even the act of just noticing yeah. them that for me was really Ooh. profound throughout my life I generally had like Lots of thoughts that were very kind of packed with self-hatred and self-shame and self-blame. And, you know, I would quite actively go, I see you and I'm not buying into it today, basically.
1: Trying to, like, unpick that and move away from that and be like, look, I don't need to prove anything to myself or anyone has been, like, quite a tricky one. Um, And realizing where it comes from. So it all takes work, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: I absolutely 100% resonate with that. Over the last sort of 13 years, I've had two big chunks of recovery. I got clean um, for the first time, and I didn't really kind of look at this stuff, and I ended up doing really well. Like, I got clean. I suddenly I went to uni. I graduated. I got a good job at the BBC. You know, I'd gone from being basically like on my ass, like in a hostel homeless, you know, addicted to drugs to suddenly like graduating and get a job at the BBC in a few years. So it was, it was quite amazing, but it was never enough. I'd keep chasing these, these achievements and then I'd get to the achievement. I'd feel empty. And eventually I did end up uh, relapsing. Um, So I saw that that pattern was, was a huge part in my relapse. So when I came back and I got clean again, I had to really, really look at that stuff. And I realised I'd been absolutely... Everything had been driven by a need to prove that I was lovable, you know, that I was worthy, that Ooh, I had, you know, like you said, yeah. proved that I was worth something. OK,
1: you're going to set me off on a whole tangent, but, like, I, I'm a hard worker, I'm ambitious, but, like, we're just, like, work to do well. And then along the way, it was like, oh, if I can prove that I'm just, like, creative, like... Amazing person who's like full of so many ideas, like maybe I can show myself that I'm worth something. Um and I think it was just a way to like, whilst trying to find my identity, which was like, well, I'm just gonna achieve and achieve some more. But then as you say, like when you get to that certain point of like you hit a height, you're then like, oh, what's next? And like that's kind of the way we as humans are wired. And this is why I think like the DJ circuit slash ladder is good for some people, like good for them but like it's very easy to get sucked into this like circle of like constantly trying to achieve and as you say like it will never be enough and that's why for me like I just want to, like pure creative expression anything that comes as a result is like a positive but I don't want to knowing how I am addicted personality and far too ambitious don't want to be the person to be like oh, all right like what's the next gig like what what festival next like what next height? Because like, it just keeps going and going and it's like quite unfulfilling in that sense.
0: Yeah, I think it's such a tricky one, particularly with DJing because essentially, if you enjoy DJing, you enjoy sharing it with others, right? And to have the opportunity to share it with others, you need to be validated by someone else and chosen by someone, unless you're putting on your own nights, which like most, a lot of people obviously do. You know, I, I find I'm very activated in it a lot of the time of like... You know, am I good enough? Do people like me? You know, and then you have like a good run and then I'm like, yay, I'm doing well. And I get, you know, really enjoying it. And then, you know, it's a bit quiet for a bit and I'm like, oh God, everyone hates me and I'm not good enough. It's funny because I started DJing really as kind of an act of self-love. Like it was like me reclaiming a part of myself that I'd abandoned in my addiction. And like, same for you. And then, yeah, it beca- you you kind of... It's like, and then you start enjoying it and then you start working harder at it. And before you know it, you're caught up in the same kind of mentality, that same kind of toxic mentality. And it's just, it's just always kind of bringing it back. Just and, replacing
1: it with something else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just, but I think it's so good to recognize it and to share it because I think we all experience that to some
1: No, I fully get that. And, like, because obviously social media plays, like, a massive part in all of this. And then, like, you add in, like, comparing, like, seeming success or, like, progress to other people's. And then that's where the whole, like, oh, I could be doing better comes from. And then not even to say of, like, how much social media has turned us all into essentially, like, trying to gain validation from, from other people. And so, therefore, a hobby turns into this thing where you are seeking validation. I've thought about this... So much over the past few years, I think at the core, if you're just doing it, like, for yourself, because I know you say it's something to be shared, but, like, also at the same time, you can bring it back to that whole, like, oh, I'm feeling really stressed. Let me have a mix. Like, that will, like, calm me down. If you're bringing it down to, like, that core feeling, which I say is, like, getting to the flow state, so, like, same way some people like to go climbing or some way some people like to, like, knit or whatever, if you, like, focus on that core feeling and then that for you... Is why you're in it. Then, like everything else, is just like a nice bonus. If you get shit of other people, cool. If not, also cool. You're still enjoying it, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Because then you don't, as you say, like outsource your happiness to other people, and it's not dependent on how you perceive other people perceiving <laughs> you. At the end of the day, I think this is why I'm like stepping away, like not quite, but wanting to focus less on the whole DJ circuit aspect because. I don't like the way that makes me feel. <laughs> and I think life's too short to spend time on stuff that you don't enjoy.
0: I'd love to talk um, a bit about one of the subjects that I've seen you speak on, which I think is so important, and that is being a person of colour in electronic music. Obviously, the roots of electronic music are in black culture but then now we look at the scene and it's so so white um i think things maybe are changing i feel like things are changing but i'd love to hear your thoughts on it i'm not so sure
1: yeah i mean so i say things are um oh that is such a hefty topic the reason i speak out about it is it is intrinsic to my identity and of course this is all an exploration of both my identity, but also, like, wider cultural identity within the scene, which is why I, like, write about this stuff and speak about it. Black people are used to carrying around a lot of... I Obviously, I can't speak for every black person ever, ever. But um, I would say, like, a lot of rage and bitterness about, like, the state of things. Um, And then you kind of just make your peace with it, and there's just a state of, like, wariness, I guess. So, again, initially, like and part of the reason the music policy is so uncompromising is it was a way to tap into that rage and kind of like distill it um, and kind of be like the world is unfair and there are systems in place against people of colour but this is going to like push against that anyway and then being a POC in the electronic music scene it's tiring AF but then also you kind of just get resigned to it so obviously like the big awakening was in June 2020 With George Floyd. If you were to look at like real systematic change that's happened since then, like a lot of institutions have welcomed more people of color, but you can argue some of it is tokenization. A lot of it is like genuine, um, but then you still see so many events, and this doesn't even annoy me anymore I'm just like, this is how it is. So many events of like just white people and like no people of color, not even black people, um, still events with straight white men. I'm like, We're still doing that? (laughs) Wow, okay. So it's just, yeah, it's just like long. But then, yeah.
0: Yeah. Our scene is rich, right? There is so many, so much out there.
1: So much out there. So much, yeah.
0: And there isn't the excuse that there isn't the awareness because there is the awareness. Like, how many times do people need to say, don't book all white male lineups, please, anymore?
1: Again, it's just like, it's nothing new. So, like, at this point, I'm just like, whatever. I'm just going to focus on doing like my own thing and like support my friends who are all really sick and support the people of color who are killing it. Um, but one thing I've noticed, and this is both I'd say is, is good. Um, but in fact it just is what it is. But like a lot of institutions are changing like slowly. You're seeing like more people of color being covered in media, um, going on like magazine covers, getting mixed opportunities, etc. But, and this has always been the thing with people of color, we will always create our own self-sustaining systems and we will always do our own thing and create opportunities for ourselves. Um, there are countless um, initiatives and collectives I could shout out, like Daytimers, um, Sherelle and her beautiful platform, um, Shannon SP and everything she's doing, like Kiki Lomo, like Oroko Radio, there's Black Rave Culture in like the US, all around the globe, Like there are so many people just like, doing things their own way. Ace MoMA and MoMA Ready, they're just like House of Altar, They're just like making things work. Um, and that's because we're used to that being the case. So even without gatekeepers like supporting us, people will still keep pushing. Um, and I find that very inspiring. Um, and I guess I kind of made it my mission to like amplify those voices. And obviously we're stronger together. So it's like link up with these collectives like so that we can as a whole, amplify each other and also, like, allies who understand it um, because it's inclusionary, not exclusionary Um, and just do things our own way. Like, we just always will. So, is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it boils down to.
0: How can someone like me be, like, a good ally and what does that look like?
1: First off, like, actually listening and, (laughs) yeah... Realising that you don't always need to take up space. So the whole point of being an ally is to like assist, right? So there were many people centering themselves in the process. And obviously there's the idea of like white guilt. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who, rather than like actually listening, were making it about themselves and trying to massage their own guilt so then I think when you actually do listen and you're like okay well here are the problems like we don't want to be tokenized if you do book us put us in like lineups of like sounds that actually work for us um even beyond that if you just want to like help amplify like these are the things you need to do like actually engage with what's being said yeah I think it's just a matter of like actually taking on board what's being said and then I mean there are multiple issues not even just when it comes to booking but also like deeper issues like microaggressions in a club like if someone doesn't want you to touch their hair like listen to them like it's it's not that hard um so yeah i think it's just a matter of like actually making space for people um and realizing that yeah you just like you use your privilege to actually like assist which is like what platforms like this help with um but there are a lot of people who because everyone's like very much out for themselves they on the surface Proclaim to be about social justice but then don't actually use their platform in a way that like genuinely helps people and that's like more damaging at the end of the day so i said just just be genuine (laughs) i know
0: there's a saying that like if you give to charity and then put it on social media that's not charity that's pr and I always like think about that you know I think it's a yeah exactly yeah yeah it's like but it's a balance isn't it because we do also want to like be able to have conversations I think out in the open and stuff but it's yeah there's a fine there's a fine line there isn't there
1: yeah and so because this is why I I think social media is like well detrimental to society as a whole but then it can have its benefits and it can have its uses and obviously like connect people and like make things happen um I don't know if it's the place for these conversations to be happening because there's a lot of scope for things to be misinterpreted um or for people to kind of hijack it for their own aims um so I think like on the ground like these conversations to be happening in real life um and then if you do want to, like, broadcast it on social media, cool, but, like, make sure you are in the background, like, actually doing stuff to, like, genuinely help and not just, performative is the best word, like, not just performing, like, this social justice costume that you're putting on. Um, but it's a tricky one, because obviously you can, like, reach a lot of people through social media. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Again, in terms of talking about privilege, something I have noticed is that there is definitely a privilege in who gets to talk about uh, mental health. And I have actually tried quite hard to include uh, people of colour on this podcast and I have found it quite challenging because there just aren't as many people who are open about it. And the reason I think that is, is because there is a, a kind of cost and a risk to speaking out about things like this. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other reasons as well, in perhaps like more cultural reasons. And that's why the most prominent voices talking about mental health generally are white middle class uh, people. Um, so I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on that and, and how we can make this conversation more inclusive.
1: It's weird because like for me the whole experience of being a minority is tied directly with mental health. But then, maybe just within our communities, we're not as open about it. Like, for example, I know, like, obviously, men as a whole, in general, are, like, less open about their emotions. And then when you put that to, like, black men, like, it's even, like, way smaller proportion. If we're looking at, like, the music industry um, as a whole, and then even seeing, like, how few relatively speaking, how f- how small the proportion of like POC black people there are who are quite prominent, the numbers like, the higher you get, like the more the numbers get filtered out. So then it gets to a point where like for every, this is obviously not an official st- statistic, for every like prominent like black person, there'll be like 20 white people. And then of those white people speaking about mental health, let's say it's like 40% so then of the black people they'll be like no one talking about it at least openly so yeah I've never actually thought about it but I think it is just having the comfort to be able to discuss that and for a lot of people of colour that's just not the case
0: how has music been beneficial to your mental health
1: uh, <laughs> uh, Um, I laugh because it's both been beneficial and detrimental beneficial in that uh, it has allowed me to get back in touch with a part of myself the creative side that was lost for a long time um, that I never saw being a part of my future as an adult like at all and has connected me to so many amazing people and like genuine like real connections with some of the best people ever who are so impossibly talented and smart and inspiring and who like motivate me every day it has also allowed me to tap into this creativity in a sense beyond music by being able to like write about stuff being able to take part in stuff like this being able to like travel around talking about real issues, like that is amazing. And so for me, the past few years have been insane. But specifically this year has been like the year of self-actualization and like all the things that when I was in my depressive hole and that I kind of envisioned but then never could have actually thought would happen. <laughs> um are now happening and that's really beautiful. So yeah, it's it's like it's changed my life and it's been like largely positive but balanced out by like a lot of negatives
0: how do you think it's been detrimental
1: so first and foremost i think through our nature of being like endlessly connected and quite a buzz word like parasocial relationships um through people on social media who think they know you now being like more of a forward-facing person whatever that really means um but like kind of having some connection to a wider public, I guess. People kind of feeling like they know me. The interactions on social media I find actually very stressful um, and also the quite transient nature of relationships in music. Um, So obviously you meet a lot of people, you collaborate with a lot of people, but then there are people who sense that you have some sort of social capital and feel they can get something from you and suddenly you're their best friend and then on top of all that obviously the music industry is very hedonistic as someone who doesn't really indulge that much in the party side i mean i do but like some people like really go for it um and that's never really been my thing i've always been into it sounds quite kooky but like for like spiritual deeper connection um so kind of seeing like the dark side of partying and how that like Affects people. That's largely it. And then it's also just made me way busier than I ever planned on being, (laughs) which is ironic because I did it to kind of take control of my life. And then through having all these plates spinning, it's made things so much more stressful.
0: Yeah, like I guess so many people, you do uh, all your music stuff, all your DJing events, and you know you're talking on panels, you're writing articles, and you do. A lot of stuff. Um, and you do it all around, obviously, still a really busy full-time job. Um, and I just wanted to touch on, you know, burnout. You know, I think it's it's like a hot topic, isn't it, at the moment? Oh,
1: I don't think I can give advice on how to avoid burnout because I am, unfortunately, like, especially this year, been chronically burnt out is actually, like, very horrible. Uh, I would say, like, saying you no know, is important, but, like, taking a step beyond that is prioritising. And then just, like, weighing up each opportunity and being like, how will this get you to the wider place of where you want to be? Because if it's, say, oh, someone's asked if I can do, like, a mix for their radio show, but I've got, like, three podcasts I need to edit and I need to, like, see my friends outside of music and, like, do all this, is it worth doing that? Then the is no. And there's a really important rule, which I recently learned, and I'm now trying to actually implement, finally. Um, but it's if you feel like 51% uncertain about something, then don't do it. Just, just don't do it. Um, it's like, as soon as that like element of doubt creeps in and then you're a bit like, is this even worth it? Then it's not worth it.
0: I was reminded of this, um, there's like I don't know. I think it was on one of those sort of DJ meme accounts. It was something about you know the amount of time that we spend thinking about what other people in the underground electronic music scene think of us and that we don't even know. And it's like it is really funny when you think about it because it's such a niche world we're in. Like, do you know what I mean? This is such a niche world, and yet it feels like everything at the moment. Yes, you know, it does. Yeah, you know. yeah,
1: yeah. I think the music industry by and large is bs to be honest like the electronic music industry um like we've had this conversation about like how there's like a lot of depth to it and how it can be a vehicle for change but like by and large like there's just like a whole load of discourse about nothing and people just talking about djing and people talking about like their next gig i'm just like it's not that deep like it can be but also who cares (laughs) Uh, that's where i've landed after like ironically a lot of time thinking about this stuff, I'm a bit like it's just playing music at the end of the day. And obviously there are like there is depth to that and you can actualise and it can help people but like it doesn't need to be all that That's
0: exactly why I'm like so grateful that you have come on this podcast today because i think there's a culture isn't there there's a there's a norm and then when you start to partake in something you feel that pressure to comply with what everyone else is doing and i think it's brave to be authentically yourself and i think that's what i am drawn to with you um, so I just thank you so much for bringing your authentic self to this podcast. No problem. Um, I've really loved speaking to you today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, this has been very cathartic. I think yeah, just just like I guess final thing for me, yeah, I don't know. Like there's a lot to be said. Just be yourself. I don't, I think people like think way too much about what other people think. Um, but I have only ever been trying to be myself and trying to get in touch with myself. And again, the striving vulnerability. So it's like, who are you been cool for? Like, who cares? Like, <laughs> just be you. Um, and it's got me this far, I guess. So I'm just going to keep doing that. So, yeah, thank you.
0: <laughs> I absolutely loved that conversation. He was so candid and so open. And I feel, yeah, I said it in the intro. He's so such a refreshing voice in that he's just so honest uh, and open and vulnerable and has so much sort of insight and such an interesting perspective on things. Thank you so much to Charles for sharing with us today. And thank you so much to you for listening. If you want to keep in touch with what Charles is up to as DJ Wingold and Unbound Events, then you can follow him at Unbound Events on Instagram. And uh, yeah, all of his links to music and events are there. Uh, talking of events, we've got, I'm going to give it another plug. I can't help myself. We've got our first Back to Life event happening in two weeks at the Love Inn in Bristol on the 28th of January. So a little bit over two weeks, sorry. And it's a Saturday night. It's the last weekend of January. I've got Tashiki Ota. Bex, Gallagher, myself, it's going to be sick. I'm really looking forward to having a dance, letting loose. They're lovely people Um, and I hope you can join us. Big, big thanks, massive big ups to my right-hand man, George Powell, who does all the edits and takes care of all the social media assets. Um, Shouts to Double O, who composed the original Podcast music uh, that you're hearing uh, under this, and of course to Vivandier, who developed our original logo and artwork. Thanks again for listening, and see you in a couple of weeks.